Welcome, Welcome, Welcome to Welcome to the Dividing Line. line. We, are we are back, back in the big studio, studio which, which means God was very, very kind to me for, for what did you say, 4,500 something around there, about 4,500 miles. Um, I'm only home for three weeks, approximately, uh, and then we're headed up to Utah. It's a short, it's a relatively short trip, but an important trip with the debate. Uh, I'm also going to be doing some stuff in Cedar City. Uh, I'm sure we have like tens of fans in Southern Utah. Utah. <laughs> uh, actually, actually, I, 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 I spoke, spoke in Cedar City, City before, and we had such a good time together. We're going to do some more uh, there in a very, 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 very Mormon area. area. And, and we're not talking. We're not talking new style Mormon. We're talking old style Mormon in Cedar City. For some reason, my son-in-law. Uh, uh, loves, loves Cedar, Cedar City. City. I'm, I'm not thousand percent sure why, why, but anyway. Uh, and, and so we're going to be, be, that's, that's only, only a little over three, three weeks, weeks away. away. Lord willing, Lord willing, and you keep helping us and keep supporting us. Uh, I'll be going up there with um, a new uh, fifth wheel in the back that uh, we won't have. The, there's no way <laughs> that we will have the studio done by then because we're breaking new ground. Well, I don't even want to use that phrase. <laughs> we, don't, we don't want to break anything. <laughs> okay. We, really? No, not breaking. No, sir. No warranty. What? Shh, 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 quiet. Uh, <laughs> I just realized the uh, the um, uh, calendar in here is still in January of 2023. So anyway, uh, so uh, Lord Wellen will be in the new unit up there. Won't have the um, studio put together. So I'll be doing the kitchen table routine which is fine we're we're good with that we'll we'll make it work it's not a long trip but we've got the debate jeff uh jeff durbin and i will be doing the debate up there and then home again really less than three weeks and then the big trip through texas all the way out to georgia uh and uh the runner academy in uh north north northwest georgia and everything else goes along with that. And possibility, possibility, folks, of a debate. Because then we've got July, which will probably go into August, uh, a little, just a little bit, uh, probably the first couple of days, um, which will take me all the way up to Minnesota and through Colorado and stuff like that. But then September with G3, uh, be praying about this. We've got a possibility of a major, major debate brewing right now. Um, that would, again, it would probably end up being a 5,500 miler this time easily. Um, but this would be, this would, yeah, this would be, this. Would, I need to get these debates done while I've, the brain's still semi functional. Um, and uh, this would be this would be a good one. So I'll let you know more about it as we as we find out more about possibilities and things like that. So excited about that. Go to uh, AOMN.org, donate, uh, drop down menu, bottom one, AO Mobile Studio. That's how we will be able to do all this stuff. And um, uh, I, I sort of jokingly say that the reason people have so well supported the, the travel fund and and this stuff is they just get me out of town all the time <laughs> i'm just sort of wondering if my wife's actually independently wealthy <laughs> she's just donating here donating there different name here different name there. Uh, yep, okay here you gotta go again bye <laughs> it's 
possible. You never know. You never know. Um, anyway, uh, one of the things that I was going to comment on on the last program, but didn't get around to it, was the clip from Andy Stanley on apologizing to unbelievers about our uh, saying, the Bible says this, the Bible says that. Now, what's interesting is I discovered that Andy Stanley actually follows me on Twitter. And so when I asked for the original link, because someone had posted just that segment, it's only about two minutes long. Um, someone else had answered first, but eventually all of a sudden I, I see that Andy Stanley himself had provided a link. Now, initially it was to a different, it was actually something different. And so I sort of jokingly said, well, unless you're a quick change artist, that's a different color shirt that you're wearing. And, um, and I had given the link to the specific sermon. It was a three-parter, so maybe he just wanted me to go from the, from the beginning. And it's interesting because uh, Andy, of course, did the unbelievable radio broadcast with Jeff Durbin on Unhitching from the Old Testament. We've talked about the influence of his views regarding uh, it's the minimalist facts apologetic approach, in essence, where, uh, you know, he's basically saying, you know, it's not the authority of Scripture, it's the reality of the resurrection. And, of course, my response from the beginning has been, you don't know what the resurrection means. You don't know why the cross took place. All of the entire apostolic interpretation of what all that means cannot be unhitched from the Old Testament. The book of the New Testament that, that goes the deepest into rooting that historical event of the crucifixion, the book of Hebrews, is, is the, the you know, I'm actually looking. We, we actually... Rich was just doing some stuff with our current RV that we're trading in. And we had to put some stuff back in it that we had taken out and things like that. And um, so it's sitting out and I can see it on my screen over here. I've got it. It's not the best neighborhood. We've said that many times. And so we keep an eye on stuff. So it's parked out in the parking lot uh, on, uh, on doggy, the truck. And um, uh, so I'm keeping a, keeping a close eye on it. And it's still hitched to the truck, even though it's on its, we, I, put, I put the struts down so that the jacks are down so it's stable while we, while we were inside so we could work on stuff. It's still attached to the truck. And the book of Hebrews is like that hitch, fifth wheel hitch. Have you ever seen a fifth wheel hitch? It's not small. It is not small. It's a, it's a big, heavy chunk of metal. It has to be to do what it does. And that's what Hebrews is, connecting the old and the new. <laughs> it's, it explains, it, it puts it all together. There is no book in the New Testament that does not, that goes into the depth of the why and the how of atonement like Hebrews does. But you can't figure Hebrews out if you're unhitched from the Old Testament. You can't do it. You, it's, it's, just, it's just a mystery book until you understand what's going on there. And so, We've, we've criticized these things, and we've tried to give a response to these things. And there seems to be a trajectory going on. I've seen a lot of stuff since the stuff was posted about gay Christians, about what's going on at Stanley's churches uh, type of situation in that 
fellowship. Uh, how many people there are clearly gay affirming and uh, what seems to be like the inevitable direction of, of where they're going. And I hope not. I don't want to see any of that. Uh, when I, when I responded last time, you know, I'm a PK, he's a PK. Um, I'm older than he is, but not by that much. Um, maybe a decade. I'm not sure exactly what his age is. I think he's in his fifties. So it'd be less than a decade. Um, and I have attempted in providing a response to do so in such a fashion as to be fair and maybe to say something that he would hear. I mean, I, I don't, wouldn't expect him to be listening to me, but he is following me on Twitter. So maybe I know what I am going to do is I'm going to send him this link, a time index to when I began my comments and hope that maybe something that I say will be of, of assistance because I don't want to see, I, I truly believe that affirmation of destructive, self-destructive sin is the least loving thing that Christians can do. And that, in fact, if God's moral law is the mechanism whereby we are given the light to flourish as human beings, especially in light of the, the secular insanity that is destroying our society around us, then the most loving thing in the world is to not is to is to don't don't unhook anything that God hasn't unhooked. And so I listened to this sermon and what came beforehand, and it really seems to me like in this context, briefly, it does seem that there's I guarantee you one thing, uh, Andy Stanley does not preach nearly as long as Jeff Durbin does. <laughs> in fact, I would say there's probably, I'd say Jeff averages twice the length of, of Andy's sermons. Um, but it, it seemed to me like there was an attempt to communicate a gospel message. But because of certain theological shortcomings, the key and powerful elements of that message, which would exalt the holiness of God and call for the repentance of rebel sinners, is muted in the sense that it becomes much more of a God's trying to get you to recognize how much you're loved message. And my concern, we, concern we have expressed many, many, many times is that when God's holiness and his wrath against sin is minimized in the proclamation of the church, the message of God's love in the cross becomes sticky sentimentality rather than the astonishing reality of what God has done in glorifying himself and the demonstration of his own love and his own mercy and his own grace toward his elect people. And so with that, I want to play some of this and, 
and respond to it. Um, by the way, this is called fair use for everyone who um, is concerned about these things. Uh, I hope everyone will recognize that it, it that it's we are we are doing this for educational and critique purposes, and so there is a law about that. But we will see. Uh, so let's let's listen to it. I began to persecute the Jesus followers. I was wrong. I was in error. I was an enemy. And while I was alive on this earth and God knew everything I was about to do. Okay, I'm glad to hear that. No open theism. <laughs> God, God has exhaustive foreknowledge. At least that sounds like what he's saying. His son died for my sin anyway. While I was still a sinner, Christ died for me, for us. <laughs> Before we did anything, before we knew there was anything that needed to be done, he did something for us. Two verses later, he writes this. He says, for if while we were God's enemies, talking about himself and talking about some of us and all of us to some extent, right? All of us to a far greater extent than we want to admit. We, we can't, you cannot, you cannot under, underplay the enmity that sin brings. While we were still God's enemies, before we did anything, before we knew there was anything to do, he went ahead and he reconciled us to him. And how did he do it? He tells us through, through, through what? Through rule keeping, through doing our best, through making more promises. He says, no. He would say, look, I was the Pharisee of Pharisees. I tried that route. There's no peace. You never know where you stand. You just become judgmental. You mistreat other people thinking you're right with God. No, we're done with all that. Through. And this is the jumping off point for some of you because this is, this is the fork in the road. How, how do you find peace with God? He says, I'll tell you how. I tried the other way, through the death of his son. Amen and very true. But what do the scriptures say the reason for that death was? It wasn't to produce a strong emotional feeling. It was first and foremost to deal with the penalty of sin, the broken law, so as to provide the mechanism of justification and our righteous standing before God. So the, the problem is you can talk about the death of his son, but the why of that death is intimately hooked permanently to the law of God, to that broken law, to the whole history of sin. And when we focus upon what the triune God is doing in salvation and then see how we benefit from that rather than starting with us and then trying to reason backwards, it all becomes very, very clear. I think it's important. The, the reason that the gospel, the reason that the arrival of Jesus, the reason the message of Jesus is good news is because we don't good our way in. We don't behave our way in any more than my children behave their way into our family. Best news of all. I just point out in passing that the only way to actually make sense of what was just said is if you affirm the doctrine of election. It's not just the idea of you know, we're human beings and therefore we're, we're, we're just all God's chillins. No, we're not. 
No, we're not. We're, we're not all God's chillings. And this all makes sense, a consistent sense, when we understand what the Bible says about election. We can't bad our way out any more than my children can misbehave their way out of our family. They are my children. I am their father regardless. Look up here. But see, again, the only way to make that hold together is if God is the one who has chosen his elect people and has changed their very natures, taken out that heart of stone, given them a heart of flesh. This only makes sense in the sovereignty of God and what, what Andy, you well know is Reformed theology. Um, the, the stuff that you've, I think, been very fully exposed to in the past, non-lordship salvation, de-emphasis upon repentance, things like that, de-emphasis upon holiness, really doesn't allow this to make any sense. And for some of you, you need to hear that because you think, but you don't know what I've done. Paul would say, hey, let, let's, let's compare notes. But you don't know that what I, but Andy, I made promise I grew up in church and then I, and I, listen, listen, Paul would say, I get all that. But understand while, while we were still sinners, while we were enemies of God, he did something for us and he did not require something from us to make things even. He's offering a gift. Take it. It's why, it's why Jesus didn't say, you must behave again. John was there for this when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus. And Nicodemus was a, was a smart, educated guy, and he was a leader in the temple system, and he's trying to figure this out. And Jesus didn't say, come on, Nicodemus, you got to behave again. He said, no, Nicodemus, you must be born again. Because the law was simply confirmation of God's love for a people. But you're born into a family. And the law was simply God's confirmation of his love for a people. It didn't, it didn't reveal God's holiness. It, it didn't, you know, you, you need to understand the book of Leviticus is God is now dwelling with his people. And they need to know how to live with holiness in their midst. That's what it was about. But what it told us about was him. And it tells us about our sin. But I, I just, you, you must be born again is something that requires external sovereign power active in our lives. That's, that's election. That's irresistible grace. It's the Holy Spirit of God. It's taking out the heart of stone, giving a heart of flesh. It's that. Power of regeneration. God is inviting you to be born again into his family. So if you're wondering where you stand with God and you keep looking at how well you're doing, according to Jesus, who rose from the dead, you're looking in the wrong place. Why all the rules? Well, for Israel, God was not attempting to make bad people good. God was keeping free people free. Free people free? Uh, what? I, I, I have no idea where you get that. God was revealing himself to his people and showing them what it 
what living must be like when he who is holy lives amongst you. They, he had just set them free, but they kept trying to go back into slavery. So I'm, I'm not, I don't know what you're doing with this law, but it's this law that required the cross. It's, it's that, the brokenness of that law that requires the necessity of the cross. And the same is true for you and the same is true for me with God, with God, as with all good parents, the relationship always precedes the rules. and, And the rules are simply God's way of saying, because I love you, here's how I want you to live. How about because I designed you, I made you, this is how you live to glorify me. The focus keeps going back to the person rather than the God who is doing all these things. And remember, Ephesians 1, 6 tells us, what's, what's the, the final end result goal of all this? The final end result goal of all of this is the praise of his glorious grace. Not, not our peace or that's, that's, that, that comes for those who are in Christ Jesus by faith, justification, imputed righteousness, all that stuff. But the overarching issue is always God's glory. And then we are his creatures. Because I love you, here's why I want you to forgive. Because I love you, here's why I want you to serve one another. Because I love you, here's why I want you to treat your enemies. Because I love you, this is why I want you to take the log out of your own eye before you. This is... I'm giving, this is why, how I want you to live because I love you and I know what brings the most happiness and fulfillment and peace. To follow the cue, to follow the life, to follow what my son modeled on earth. We are reconciled to God, are made to be able to fit with God by grace. We choose to follow, we choose to obey out of gratitude. And Jesus summarized it so he made it so simple. He said, here's all I want you to do. Here's what it looks like to follow and obey me. Here's your one rule. I just want you to treat other people the way that I have treated you. Do not forget that once upon a time, you too were a slave. To close, I want to... Okay, so here's where he transitions into the clip that everybody was looking at. And so I think it is relevant to recognize that he does this at the end of this kind of a sermon. There is is some gospel light in it, but it's missing the balance that makes the gospel so powerful. It's, it's, It's missing what makes the gospel a command. Repent and believe. And maybe Andy thinks that's a good thing. But I would simply say, the only way anyone's going to accept this invitation is if by the Spirit of God, their entire heart is changed. And then they need to know what to do when that heart is changed. And that's the command. Repent and believe. Um, so here it is. 
kind of turn another page. And I want to say something for two minutes to those of you who are not Christians or not Jesus followers, or maybe you used to be and you got away, and, or maybe you're part of a different religion or a different faith system. And I really want to apologize. If one of us Christians um, has attempted has attempted to impose one of our Christian rules on you, I'm sorry. Um, you know, anyone who said, but the Bible says, or Jesus said, or God, you know, and they, they, they just try to impose one of their, our, our Christian rules on you. I just want you to know, I am so sorry. How you choose to live your life is really none of our business. Okay. And this is what caught a lot of people completely off guard. Um, because I don't know what Christian rules you're talking about here. But if um, if Jesus says it is better for a millstone to be hung around a person's neck than you offend one of these little ones, um, that's not a quote unquote Christian rule. That's that's Jesus who rises from the dead and is enthroned at the right hand of the Father and who will judge the living and the dead, saying that if you are a um, doing drag queen story hours and seeking to groom children for homosexuality, homosexuality, it would be better if a millstone, and a millstone, if you've ever seen one, is a big, huge, multiple, multiple hundred pound uh, rock, uh, were wrapped around your neck, tied around your neck, and you were drowned in the depths of the sea. Um, That's strong language. It's very strong language. And maybe Christian rules would include 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, which speaks of, of thieves and murderers and gluttons and homosexuals and says, will not inherit the kingdom of God. But such were some of you. But you were washed, you were cleansed, you were justified, spirit over God. So there needs to be a washing, a cleansing, a justification, a turning from these things. But you have to tell people what God's law is. You have to say, yes, God's word has said this. You can't tell them even of Jesus's invitation. Well, if you want to call it an invitation to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him without going to the Bible. And you may think that, well, it's, it's enough. It's enough to say, that uh, this is an accurate historical record. No, that's an accurate historical record is insufficient to communicate to you the authoritative words of Christ, wherein he says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. That, that has spiritual authority and it has, to, it has to have that authority in the revelation by which it's given. So I don't know what Christian rules are and I don't know why you feel the need to apologize. It could be, and I said this the last time, maybe it could be. When you do not, and in many Southern Baptist contexts, you don't have a consistently developed understanding of the nature of Scripture. You don't have a consistently consistent, consistently developed um concept of the authority of scripture for all human beings, because this is God speaking. This is how we know our God. And, you know, there's, there's, there's general revelation 
we know that he exists. We should be thankful to him and that type of thing. But to know him and to know his will requires this special revelation called scripture. And so it's, it's one creature who has found the light, who has been found by the light, saying to another creature that remains in darkness, here's the light. That's a loving thing to do. I don't understand apologizing because you're going to confuse things here. You're going to say, well, it, it's just none of our business. And the text you're going to use is, you're making a bad application of it. Let's, let's take a look at it. In fact, you're, if you aren't really a Bible person, you're going to, I'm going to show you a verse that you've never seen before that you're going to love this. This is a, for sure one verse that you're going to agree with in the Bible. And, and I hate to admit this in front of a lot of Christians, but a lot of us have never seen or read this verse either. The Apostle Paul, who again wrote half the New Testament, about half the New Testament. In the, this, this is some of the most ancient Christian literature. In fact, this is the earliest of his books. This was before the Gospels. And he's writing to some Christians and he's telling them how to behave in a culture where they are the minority and everybody else, you know, they just don't buy it. You know, they just reject it, maybe like you do. And here's, here's what he said to them. And if we had been doing this all along, chances are you would not have been offended by one of us. So this is completely on us, but this is what he said. You're gonna love this. He said, make it your ambition. That is, you need to focus. This is a big deal front and center every single day. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and you should mind your own business. You're like, that's not in the Bible. Uh Uh-huh. And he goes on to say, you should mind your own business and work with your own hands and take care of your own family. And just, you know, just do your thing. Why? So that your daily life may, may win the respect of outsiders. Where did we get the idea? Stay with me. Where did you get the, we get the idea that somehow we are to impose our rules, our family rules on people who don't even want to be in our family? Okay, this is, Andy, this is where you're just, you're completely missing it. You just, first of all, um, Paul is writing to the Thessalonians. He's correcting some imbalances that they are experiencing. And he is giving them very practical discussion. None of this has anything to do with proclaiming to the world God's message of sin and salvation and reconciliation, let alone the fact that, you know, it would almost seem like you believe that the earliest Christian writings we have outside the New Testament, the Didache, the Epistle of Diognetus, for example, both of them very plainly show us that the Christians recognized the sinfulness of the culture around them, and though it cost them greatly, they did seek to live in a way that glorified God, and that very often led them into conflict with the society around them. When the Christians would, you know, both those early sources, for example, uh, high sexual moral standards, uh, view of the marriage bed, uh, the early Christians would go around and when people would expose their babies and leave them out in the trash pile to be eaten by the dogs at night, the Christians would come along and rescue them and, and raise them as their own, even though 
there was great hunger and, and it cost them greatly to do these things. They, th- this, this was not a statement to early Christians that they are to hide the light of God's revelation under a bushel. This was not, if, when, when Paul spoke with Festus, um, and, and he became convicted, what were they talking about? They're talking about judgment and, 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 and holiness. Where do you think Paul was going? Well, he certainly wasn't unhooked from the Old Testament, I can guarantee you that. And there wasn't a New Testament to be reading. So he was bringing God's law to bear upon that man's conscience. That's what he was doing. So unless you're saying Paul was contradicting himself here, this, is, this doesn't have anything to do about mind your own business means keep Christ's claims out of society. It's not what it means. It's not what it's even close to meaning. So I don't understand this this drive to be apologizing unless you yourself feel you have been offended. And maybe you've seen so many situations where down south, somebody abused and misused scripture for their own political gains, their own personal gains. Um, they just didn't like somebody, and so they used religion to their in, in, in an inappropriate, inappropriate way. Maybe that's what you're talking about. Maybe that's what's in the background of your thinking. I don't know. But where it's gotten dangerous is because you've disconnected from the Old Testament. Once you, let's say, let's say someone decides to take you up on your offer. And then we have the important question in our day, what is a Christian to do in light of the the fact that there is a school in San Diego, I heard about this morning, where they had someone in who was a former homosexual and spoke about God's redeeming love in their life. And now people found out about it and they want to kick them out of being able to rent the school space any longer. Now it's unconstitutional, but it'll happen anyways, because the constitution is a piece of paper and it's only how many people want to actually want to obey it. That will give any power. Um, but these are, these are rebel sinners and they don't want to hear what God has to say, but they need to hear what God has to say. And here is a woman that heard what God had to say and was delivered out of that. We don't love people by accepting their sin and by being silent about the solution for their sin. There's a vast difference between saying to the regular Christian living their life, um, don't be running around uh, being busybodies, work with your own hands, um, don't don't be the the people that are you know we we end up seeing in Corinth there are people running around doing this type of stuff the gossiping things like that ended up having problems in Thessalon in Thessalonica which is why I have the second epistle has to be read because there's confusion about resurrection the order of things and eschatology and stuff like that so I really think you just missed the point there um, and I don't know what the what you would then have 
to offer to people who turn to Christ and say, well, all right, I, I'm a follower of Jesus now. Well, what does that mean? It means Jesus Christ is Lord, Lord of your life. Well, then I, didn't, I need to know what he wants me to do. What are you going to direct them to? If, if you've unhitched yourself from the authority of Scripture, um, what do you have left? We got it all wrong. We got it backwards. The rules are for family. So, Christians, let's mind our own business. And for those of you who've been offended by us because we didn't, I'm sorry. We got it wrong. Um, if you are, Andy, if you are looking at homosexuals, people who transgender, people who, I don't believe there is, there is no such thing as transitioning, there's no such thing as transgender. It's, it's all fantasy. But if they're, if they're who you're talking to and you're saying, I'm sorry that Christians have offended you by saying the Bible says that's wrong, that is probably the worst use of Paul's words I've ever even heard of in my life. It really is. It really, really is. That's not what he was talking about. I could take you elsewhere in Thessalonians for some real strong language from Paul that would be a little bit more relevant. It is not loving. It is not loving to withhold from people the light that they need. And they may be offended by that light. That's what John says. People don't like the light because their deeds are darkness. But we all know that's what God uses. And when the spirit moves, he uses that testimony to bring people into himself. So, um, no apologies. But all this really does come back to this disengagement you have made from the authority of Scripture. And its unique life-giving capacity in a world gone mad in its own wisdom. We need those ancient words. And we need to recognize the authority of those ancient words. We really, really do. Let's bring that down. (coughs) Excuse me. And um, shift gears. Shift gears. I'm trying to look at the clock and go, where in the world am I? Um, Took a lot longer on that than I I expected. Um, Let me talk a little bit. We're going to really shift gears to the subject of textual issues. All you geeks are all excited about that. I'm sure. Um, I don't believe the, 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 the video of the debate with Thomas Ross, uh, it's, it's about ready to be posted. Um, as I mentioned, I had 18 slides, understandable, usable slides, uh, for my opening presentation, and uh, Thomas Ross had 256. Um, and as I said last time, he wasn't really there for the audience or or for convincing anybody of anything. Um, he was he was there for his own small group, and um, as a result, did the machine gun rat a tat tat throw everything out there, but the kitchen sink type thing 
which no one can really interact with in a meaningful fashion. Uh, when you're reading stuff so fast, his his dear little wife did a great job keeping up. She was she was the one that people were impressed by, not Ross. <laughs> it was it was Mrs. Ross <laughs> that she could find those uh, slides that fast, given how many there were. But when when no re- competent adult could even read the material on the slides fast enough before the next slide was up and even listen to it all was being said. You're not there to, you're, you're just there for yourself. You're not there to do anything for anybody else. And so there's nothing you knew about that type of stuff. Um, so anyway, in the midst of that, it took me a while to figure out what he was even saying. It, it took me a long time to figure out what he was saying. And I know a little something about this field. So I really doubt that anybody else in that room, I'm not sure he fully understood this, to be honest with you. Once I figured out what it was he was saying, I'm like, oh, that argument. Okay. That was, he, he was, he, all he had with him was uh, this volume here. So here's, here's my set of Reuben Swanson's New Testament Greek manuscripts. So he had this one with him. And here's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, and Galatians. Um, and so I've, I've had these for quite some time, and they're, they're very useful. Um, and I, was, I apologize. I was going to take a camera shot so I could put it up on the screen. Sorry, I'm not going to hold up in front of the camera and expect that to do anything. Uh, but he was holding this up while saying that Swanson documents, I think he said over a hundred places in the gospel of Matthew where the Nessialand, where there is no manuscript that contains uh, the text found in the Nessialand. And when I first heard it, I'm like, what? I mean, you, you know, the, the other side loves to go after one incredibly minor text in First Peter or Second Peter, somewhere in Peter, um, where the Nessian has gone with a conjectural emendation, which I reject. Which there's no reason to accept it. It's the same one that when I asked uh, Bart Ehrman in 2009 uh, if there was a any place that he could think of where the original reading did not exist. That was the only one he could come up with, which says a lot. But I, I was still trying to, I was trying to figure it out. And finally, I, you know, I, I figured out what, what, what was going on. The argument is when it's expressed for the purpose of someone actually understanding <laughs> what you're saying, which it wasn't being done in this case. The argument is that when you have, say, a verse, an entire verse in Matthew that has, let's say it has four variant units in the verse, which means uh, I could pull up the CBGM database right now. We could we could look at something in uh, in Acts or Mark or something like that. 
you can look at a verse and you'll be able to see where there are variant units. And vast, vast majority of these involve articles or prepositions and things like this, um, which may not actually end up impacting the translation into English. Um, but the argument is that when you look at the text that the Nessialand presents as its main text, now it gives the references and then you can look at the textual notes and stuff like that. But in the main text line, the argument is that there are times when you have the choices that they have made in what represents the the best original text reading doesn't appear in a singular manuscript that we that we possess now that's just a an argument from the majority text perspective so the majority text perspective is saying uh you know going back to pickering and stuff like that that mathematically this would be the most likely text type of situation. And all this represents the fact that after, say, 900 AD, the vast majority of manuscripts that are produced, which are the vast majority of manuscripts that we possess, are produced in one particular area, and the text has been pretty much solidified by that point in that particular area. So it's a majority text argument saying, well, there's no, there's no manuscript that has that exact line in it. The problem was he was waving this around. And if you know what this is, um, and I even, he had this on his table. I picked it up and I was looking at it going, I don't know what he's talking about. What's fascinating is this uses Codex Vaticanus as its base text. Uses Vaticanus as its base base text, and so what you what you have um, is variants. The, the 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 line is put in in a form, and and the variant along the along the right hand side to show how it varies from Codex Vaticanus. So every line in here has manuscript evidence. It's Codex Vaticanus, minimally. For the vast majority of the text, it's it's all manuscripts. I mean, the one thing that, that CBGM has documented for us is the amazing consistency of the New Testament manuscript tradition. Um, it's not this just, just big jumbled mess that people would like to present it as at all. Um, there are very, 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 very high rates of coherence for a vast majority of the text. And when you have variants, what Swanson provides you there is what those variants look like in comparison to Codex Vaticanus. And so it just seemed to me that either he didn't understand what he was saying or the whole point of the repetitive presentation of it was to try to implant in the minds of the hearers, though at the speed he was speaking, I don't know that anyone caught any of it at all, to be honest with you. 
um, that the modern eclectic text cannot have any possibility of representing the apostolic text. And once you communicate that idea, then it's just like, well, we're just going to throw throw all this out and we, we need, we need a certain text. And so we're going to glom onto the TR and we're not going to worry about the fact that the TR has its own history and it has its own unique readings and it has readings that just couldn't possibly go back to the apostles, but we need something. And so that's what we're going to glom onto. Um, And that's what a lot of people end up doing, uh, unfortunately. And it, again, it's trading truth for certainty. You trade the truth for certainty and you may just feel so warm and snuggly having made that decision, but it doesn't mean you have truth any longer. You've just, all you've got now is certainty. And I know people who are absolutely certain that the Quran is true and absolutely certain that the Book of Mormon is true. And um, certainty is a wonderful thing if, if it is based upon truth. So, uh, like I said, I'm, I don't know when the, the video is going to drop, but you'll, you'll see what I mean. Uh, and maybe somebody will go along. I'm not going to waste the time to do it. But somebody may go along, and you're not going to listen to that debate at, at two times speed, 1.5. You're not going to be able to listen to that debate at one speed. Um, the only way to even begin to check out what Ross was saying would be to drop it down to about 0.7 and stop and start. Uh, that would be about the only way to do it because it was just, it was just that rapid fire set fast. So I said uh, last week while I was on the trip that I wanted to look at one of the chapters. It's a short chapter, chapter 13. Maybe I'm not, I don't think that's relevant. The short chapter in the, why I preached from the received textbook came out 2021, 2022. Somewhere in that area, by Brett Mullen, um, who um, is the one that makes the most reference to me. And so I wanted to uh, take a look at that. And so we'll do that uh, right here. It says, I still remember where I was in the late 1990s, as do I, when I first heard Dr. James White on Hank Hanegraaff's The Bible Answer Man broadcast talking about White's recent book, The King James on the Controversy. I was recently converted to Christ at the time, and I was drinking as much Bible teaching and doctrine as I could find, and Hanegraaff had been satisfying my thirst. On that day, I was fascinated by every word these two men said, whether they were talking about the KJV itself, manuscripts, history, or taking calls. Desiderius Erasmus and other names seemed to roll off their tongues effortlessly, even though I had never heard them before. I knew on that day that I needed to learn what these men knew. Okay. I continued as a Hanegraaff listener for many years, and I went on to read a few of White's books, his articles, and I benefited from his debates. Both men taught me much about truth and error. I did not automatically believe what they taught. I checked out for myself as they taught me to do. Well, that's good. As a young Christian, I was vehemently opposed to Calvinism. In an effort to bolster my arguments, I decided to buy Norman Geiser's book, Chosen But Free. By the way, um, I'm going to be joining uh, the class. There's a intensive class this week at, at GBTS. Owen Strand's teaching it. And uh, one of the things they're doing is they're comparing Chosen But Free with Potter's Freedom. And so I, I said, hey, if you'd like me to pop in via Zoom, 
there's lots of background information that might be fascinating to everybody to know about how that all came about. And so Thursday, I'm going to be popping into the class and, uh, and doing that. So it be, should be interesting. I read both books, and in the end, real, I realized that I could be an Arminian no longer. God used white to open my eyes to God's sovereignty. I am grateful for God's kindness to me in that. Well, that's wonderful. In the spring of 2001, I wrote an email to James White, and he wrote me back. <laughs> I was amazed that he had written back to a nobody like me, but I was also struck by how long and thorough his answer was. He clearly took my question seriously, even though I was a stranger, and it was a private email. I wish I remembered that, but that's uh, 22 some odd years ago, and I've re- I wrote a few emails since then. <laughs> so it's, I've slept since then, as Rich likes to say. Um, they start talking about some other reading that he did, like Metzger and Ehrman. Of course, I suggest people skip the Ehrman uh, edition of the Metzger uh, book. Talks about some of the um, translations he used. He says, I began to dig deeper into the state of text criticism. I began to read the, the Metzger Ehrman book more slowly than I was able to do in seminary. That book took on a devotional tone to me. I, that caught me. I don't understand that. I mean, I've obviously read it, um, used it as a textbook, again, tried to avoid the fourth edition, but I don't understand devotional tone. Uh, that, that never took on a devotional tone to me, that's for sure. For years, I had listened to White's debates with KJV only as like Gail Ripplinger, never debated her. We did a radio program, and that was the last time she ever let herself be put in a position of having to answer questions from somebody who was a critic. But Gail Ripplinger's loony. I mean, um, you know, that's why Kent Hovind's loony, because <laughs> he, he thinks Gail Ripplinger knows what she's talking about. Uh, the Ripplinger line is a clear line. Once you get, get to the Ripplinger line, you've got Ruckman and all the rest of that cultic insanity out there. Because it is. It's just wackadoodle, uh, stuff past that particular line. But most people on our side don't take that kind of stuff very seriously. Well, don't take it seriously at all. I mean, I take it seriously in that it splits churches and stuff like that. So I responded to it, exposed it, demonstrated it was crazy. But um, anyway, uh, and whites seemed to defeat them all, usually rising above their personal attacks. And sometimes the debates were downright hilarious, especially the Ripplinger debate. Well, Again, the radio program, yeah. Uh, and it was. But I think anybody can tell the difference between that and the uh, televised discussion. It wasn't, again, a real formal debate uh, on Revelation TV from London in 2011. That would be a very different. Jack Mormon is wrong about all sorts of things, but he's not Gail Ripplinger. So I think most people can see that along the way. Um, but then he starts saying, um, as I continue to read the modern versions, more doubt began to set in my mind. The translational differences, but especially the textual possibilities in the apparatus of the Greek New Testaments began to bother me more than ever. I just, I just have to stop and ask, so if you were reading the King James that had all the original translator notes in it, which included the variants, things like that, would that bother you too? Would you want to go back to the Geneva, the bishops, because this newfangled King James guy is, is 
is strange. Previous, previously, I've been able to ignore the differences because I was just an average Bible reading layman. In ministry, however, I had to preach the text. Before I could preach the text, I had to be sure what it was, yet sometimes I was unsure. I had internal struggles because of the unsettled text. Well, don't you realize this discussion has been going on since the early church? Um, have you, have you, you said you read the King James only controversy. How about the conflict between Jerome and Augustine on translational issues, canonical issues? What happened, the rioting that took place when the Latin Vulgate was first read from people who were used to the Greek Septuagint? Does, does that bother you? Because that's all long before TR. They had to deal with these issues. So why would you think that you don't have to deal with these issues? Why, why do you get off freely when people for centuries before you, this was regular reality of what they had to deal with? Um, then he, he says he was called out of his first pastorate into a prison ministry context. Um, and he said, most of the inmates were African-American and used the King James Version, but I used the ESV. I was listening to White and Hanegraaff again, and I was being edified. Because he said he was having to do apologetic work. Well, okay. Then he mentions, and this is interesting, my heart was broken as I heard the news that on Easter Sunday, 2017, Mr. Hanegraaff was chrismated in a Greek Orthodox church. Although I never took Hank to be infallible, I often found his opinion to be well-informed. He usually encouraged people to research topics for themselves rather than simply to adopt his opinion. I had a hard time respecting his conversion to Eastern Orthodoxy, but I think I might understand it better now. Hank went from atheism to evangelicalism, and therefore did not have a church background which gave much emphasis to ecclesiastical history. Well, I was never 100% certain exactly what Hank's journey was. Um, but he himself claimed that he was at some point a part of a Reformed church that would have had a confessional document. I don't know how long that was. I don't know how formational that was, but he did seem to indicate that. Um, like many people who leave evangelicalism, it may be that he believes evangelicalism is non-historical, as Ed Setzer, Ed Setzer, or is, I think it's Stetzer, yeah, and others argue. Um, and he says, I also appreciated White's critique of Hanegraaff's conversion. So he had listened when we did, I don't know, two or three programs or something like that around that time. Almost 20 years earlier, however, White had assured Hanegraaff on his show that the text of the Bible was not a sure thing. Okay, this is the first point where I'm like, okay, now we're seeing where we're going to have to start um, coming up with a different perspective, was not a sure thing. If you mean that textual variance exists in the manuscripts, again, that's not even a questionable issue. Um, ironically, I would think that Hanegraaff's conversion to orthodoxy would include a conversion in his view of the text to a form of Byzantine um, textual commitment. But on what basis? 
because of the traditions of Eastern Orthodoxy. So here's someone can, who is upset at Hannah Graf's conversion, but doesn't seem to realize that his own adoption of a received text position is a traditional thing. It's traditional just like Hannah Graf's acceptance of the authority of Eastern Orthodoxy is traditional. Isn't that weird? Seems strange to me. The implication of White's teaching about the Bible was that it had been corrupted by additions from the, quote, Orthodox, who allegedly added the ending to Mark, the woman caught in adultery in John 8, and 16 other verses being either added or corrupted. For example, 1 Timothy 3.16. Again, for someone who claims to have read my book, sometimes I'm like, what? What do you mean additions from the Orthodox? Um, I, I, I don't take a, in fact, I, I disagree with Ehrman and his Orthodox corruptions perspective. So that's not where I'm coming from at all. And as to the longer ending of Mark, I have serious questions about the orthodoxy of the longer ending of Mark. Jesus didn't appear in different forms. Um, I don't, I don't think we're, we're to, um, handle snakes and drink poison and things like that. So I'm not even sure what that's supposed to mean. Um, the woman caught in adultery. I don't know the uh, orthodoxy or lack of orthodoxy of the origination of that oral story. All I know is it appears multiple places in John and it appears in Luke. And it doesn't appear in any written manuscript before the fifth century. So those are just facts. You can, you can dislike those facts. You can, you can say, well, if you accept these facts, then you might become Eastern Orthodox or something. That doesn't make any sense. You can, you can close your mind to these things and just put them aside and go, that bothers me too much, so I'm just going to grab this thing over here and I'm just going to stop thinking about the other stuff. But that's how you trade truth for certainty but it's not a truthful certainty. And then First uh, Timothy 3.16. Well, I've explained that one over and over and over again. And that's, that is a error of sight. The difference between Haas and Theos there is one, maybe two, depending on how you read it, uh, horizontal lines on a papyri. That, that, that's not... Uh, that's that's not some purposeful thing going on there. There's no way of proving that that's purposeful at all. So I'm not sure even where all of a sudden, you know, learned a lot from them, but I didn't really listen all that closely. Um, and then all these uninspired additions were removed by the 19th Century Revision Committee. You've been reading way too much Bergen. You're 100 years behind. You're, you're, uh, uh, and if you've listened to me much, you know that. <laughs> um, this isn't about 19th century vision committees. If you know anything about CBGM or anything like that, you know we're not talking about anything in the 1800s at all. Um, and I don't know where the term uninspired additions comes from, um, because we could look at we could look at the deletion if we want to use that terminology of and such we are at first john 3 1 
in the TR and the King James. It's not an addition, it's a subtraction. With no historic confession and no Bible that was on sure footing, it makes sense that Hank would leave evangelicalism in search of a church with stronger historical foundations. Um, I don't, I don't think that I have not heard, okay, let's put it this way. I have not heard Hanegraaff make any comments whatsoever. I don't listen to him anymore. But a lot of people send me stuff when he does make specific claims, and we have responded to some of the stuff, you know, some of his attacks on Sola Scriptura, we've responded to that. Um, but I don't think at all that his perspective is that he's now Byzantine priority and that's given him a sure footing in the Bible. Because if you deny Sola Scriptura, you're not looking for a sure footing in the Bible. You're looking for a sure footing in tradition, in liturgy of the church, especially in, in orthodoxy. Maybe if White had assured Hanegraaff that God's word had been kept pure in all ages, as Owen and Turrets had had in the 17th century, rather than corrupted by the Orthodox, a different result may have taken place. Hanegraaff says he converted because of theosis, but these matters are always more complex than one issue. <laughs> okay, so maybe if I had told Hank that we should ignore everything that's been discovered since 1633, all the papyri, all the unseals, um, and we should just glom onto uh, the work of a 16th, early 16th century Roman Catholic priest and theologian and scholar by the name of Desiderius Erasmus, that somehow would have kept this from happening? Really? You really think that? You really think that if Hank had been a TR-only guy, See, that would, that would not be any barrier to going Orthodox because they're Byzantine texts anyways. That's what I, I mean, seriously? This was really bad argumentation. Really, really bad. Really bad. Sorry about that, brother, but... Uh, so then he starts talking about some of the, once he finally starts reading Letus. Of course, anybody can read my interactions with Letus. Uh, William Burgon, again, 100 years out of date. Uh, Edward F. Hills dealt with. How did you only now run across these guys when I wrote about them in my book? Well, I did Hills anyways. I hadn't, I didn't have the interaction with Letus until the year after my book came out. Um, but it was an extensive interaction. But I, I dealt with Hills in the King James only controversy. It, it sounds like, well, I found these guys. But if you had read me, you would have already found those guys. <laughs> I was familiar with James White's criticisms of these men, but I had not read them for myself. So I began to pour over these men's works, and I was amazed. They had not had the foolishness I found so common in KJV Onlyus. And it became ever clear that these men were not so much advocating for a particular English version as they were standing for the Catholic faith and the Catholic Bible as it was handed down for the apostles. And that's just not true. They will not allow for any they did not allow, they're gone. They did not allow for any improvement of the King James Version. As long as you, as long as you will stand there, you are a King James onlyist. 
just as much as Gail Ripplinger is. You may not be nearly as wacky, um, but you're just as much of a one. It says, it became clear to me that these men were not inventing something new, but they were defending the Reformation view itself, demonstrated especially by John Owen, Francis Turret, and William Whitaker, and the framers of the Protestant Confessions. No, they were not. This is historical anachronism. These men did not have a critical text. They did not have the papyri. They did not have the unseals in the form that we have it today. They did not have the vast majority of the material to be able to know the differences in the text and therefore to bring them back and to anachronistically drag them up here and make them actually taking a position on a subject that they didn't know anything about is an abuse of church history that I am so tired of UTR only guys doing. It is anachronism and it's abusive. Stop it. Stop it. They did not have the information we have. You cannot make them take a position on this subject. It is wrong. If you have any integrity in church history, stop it. It's wrong. It's wrong to do. Um, then there's some, you know, the, then the funny thing is, then you have this, uh, there's a section where all oh, these King James translators, they're so far beyond anybody we have today. That sounds great, except for one thing. You don't listen to the translators. Read the preface. The King James translators did not believe in the infallibility of their own translation. They did not believe it would be the last. They would be absolutely mortified if they knew there was a King James-only movement today. They did not follow the idea that, well, hey, what we've got in, in the manuscripts today is the final word. There's going to be nothing more. Uh, we've, we're done. That's it. Didn't do any of that kind of stuff. And in fact, they wanted the text to be in the everyday language of the people as it was when it was originally given, which our writer here does not accept. As he's going to say, uh, yeah, these men in prison actually had dictionaries and used them. It has been a delight to preach and teach in the same version they have in their hands and they have appreciated it as well. So I'm going to make the prisoners use a Bible translation. Well, they have to have a dictionary to figure out what it's saying. And every single King James translator would say, wrong. So why elevate them at one point and then others go, well, I know they said that in the preface to the readers, but we're just going to sort of ignore that part. Um, not a good thing to do. Um, then he, he runs through a couple of things, like with Letus. Chapter 5 argues that modern Bibles contain a heretical reading of John 118. I'm assuming that's monogamous theos. I've never seen anyone even get close to anything but wildly circular and horrible arguments on that one. Um, uh, even though they, had, they were divorced from history in that version. Meanwhile, Reformation Protestants abandoned the KJV and the TR. I learned that there was more depth than first appeared when I used to listen to James White's dismissals of these men. Show me, if you have any integrity, brother, you will demonstrate where my interaction with Letus or my interaction with Hills was in any way deficient. You didn't even try. This is just pure cheap shot. That's a cheap shot. Show me where I erred in my analysis of Hills in the King James Only Concert. Go read the pages and pages and pages and pages of my going back and forth Theodore Letus. Or, um, some TR, TR advocates like to insult James White, but I do not find that helpful. Yay. I do believe Dr. Riddle defeated Dr. White in the two debates of October 2020. 
How? It's real simple. Real simple, brother. Help me out here. Um, don't want these books to fall over. I demonstrate conclusively in those debates that Dr. Riddle uses one set of standards depending on what textual variant he's looking at. He used a completely different set of standards for the long writing of Mark than he did for Ephesians 3.9. Completely. If you apply the standards he did over here to here, you have to change Ephesians 3.9, and then you have to reverse them. If you can't use the same standards all the way across, your position is hopeless. It's truth traded for certainty. So, uh, you know, he says, I still benefit from White's books and his debates against Romanists, cultists, and Muslims. I appreciate his stand against wokeism. All men have feet of clay, and I learned from a wide variety of men with whom I may disagree on some issues. That's wonderful. That's why you're still my brother. But in reading your entire article, which then ended right after you said that, you said, the 16th and 17th century Protestants were correct that God has kept his word pure. I believe the same thing, except I can actually deal with the facts and the manuscripts and the history, including everything they didn't have. You can't. So why put yourself in that position? It's more comfortable. What does that accomplish? Doesn't accomplish anything at all. So Brett, Malin or Malin, at least at this writing, uh, Covenant of Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Orland Park, Illinois. Well, Brett, um, I appreciate all the kind words. All I can say is your chapter is sort of indicative of why the position you've adopted is indefensible. Hate to have to say it that way, but it's true. And believe me, um, that had nothing to do with Hank Hennigrass conversion. Um, some of us know a whole lot more about that and had nothing, nothing to do with it at all. So, all right, there you go. We actually went, what, 15 minutes over or something like that? Yeah. Hey, we're back in the studio. And unless all that tapping you were doing on your phone out there had anything to do with anything, Okay, that's what I figured. <laughs> oh, well, all right. Uh, so anyhow, all right. So um, I know on Thursday, that's the day I'm doing the little guest lecture. Hey, let's talk about the background of this book thing at, at, uh, at Grace. But I think that's, I'm, I'll have to look at the time. Uh, I was looking at it this morning and I've forgotten what it what it was. I think it is at 1 p.m. So we'll see. Um, we'll see how Thursday looks. We'll try to try to get our regularly scheduled program in um, one way or the other. Um, because let me see, I'm looking here at the calendar, and yeah, whew. one, two, three. Three and a half weeks or so uh, before we are on the road again. Right before I leave, 
Skillet will be in town. <laughs> and we were hoping, we were really hoping to drag those poor people out of their bus and go do something fun with them. And that's not going to work, unfortunately, but they want us to come over and hang out like we did last time before the concert and just do the things that we do because they're, uh, John and I continue to talk. We, we, we talked for quite a while on the phone uh, as I was driving in yesterday about it's, it's frequently cultural issues, you know, biblical application stuff, things like that. But, um, uh, you know, when, when John Cooper has to stop, um, rocking and, um, you know, age finally catches all those jumping off of stages finally catches up with his knees. <laughs> it's going to happen. Um, he's going to have some very, uh, beneficial things to be doing. I think, uh, uh, in the future, uh, he's a solid guy and, um, good mind, good mind, good mind. So anyways, thanks for watching the program today. We'll let you know when the next one will be up. We'll see you then. God bless. <laughs>